This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, a journey through the career of editor Maisie Hoy, who started off as an actress for director Robert Altman in the acclaimed film McCabe and Mrs. Miller, starring Julie Christie and Warren Beatty. And we'll talk all about her close working relationship with Robert Altman, which went through Nashville, Buffalo Bill, California Split, and eventually to editing the Oscar-nominated film The Player, which was Robert Altman's comeback in 1992, starring Tim Robbins. If you're a Robert Altman fan, stick around, because Maisie Hoy has some incredible stories to tell about working with the acclaimed filmmaker, who was one of the definitive directors of 1970s Hollywood. We'll also talk with editor Maisie Hoy about how she defined her career in the film industry, starting off as an actress, apprenticing for director Robert Altman, and then forging a career as a film editor, editing The Player, The Joy Luck Club, the cult classic Freeway, starring Kiefer Sutherland and Reese Witherspoon, and editing more than a dozen films for director Tyler Perry, who has broken box office records. It's a candid conversation about developing a career in the film industry with a focus on editing, both the craft and how to maintain a career in the business. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can subscribe to Jog Road Productions on YouTube to watch some of our Road to Cinema video interviews featuring Don Cheadle, Ewan McGregor, Moon Zappa, and many more. Follow us on Twitter, at Jog Road. Like our Facebook page, Jog Road Productions. You can follow us on Instagram, Jog Road Productions. And don't forget to write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. And now we join editor Maisie Hoy as we begin by discussing her early work as an actress in Robert Altman's acclaimed film, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which featured Julie Christie and Warren Beatty. You started off as an actress, and your career with Robert Altman began on McCabe and Mrs. Miller yes. way back when. So how did that come about? I mean, how did you even think about becoming involved with the film industry? Well, when I was cast in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I, <clears throat> I was acting in Vancouver, and I had an improvisational company that I directed. And, you know, back then, the Canadian government, they were giving out grants to people to create jobs. So my girlfriend and I decided, well, gee, you know, it was yeah. like, Andy, my dad's got a barn. And so <laughs> we said, well, what about, what about a theater, co- theater, theater company? And we'll specialize in improvisations and Viola Spolin's theater games. And then we threw some stuff like sensitivity exercises and things like that. Yeah. And so we got this grant to um, perform and I hired like five actors and then I was the director. And so we had like lunch uh, at nighttime, we would you know, do improv theater. And then during the daytime, we would go to different schools like um, inner city schools, play theater games with them. And um, then when Robert, then when Bob came into town, um, I met Graham Clifford, who was his casting director. And Graham is now a director. And so he he saw me, and um, that's how I got involved with Bob. And I didn't know that I got the job, you know, until I walked in to meet him. And there was Bob in his typical self. He's laying on the couch. He goes. I don't get up for whores. <laughs> and that's when I knew I got the job. <laughs> Trying to get you in character. Yes, right, right. 
what was your perspective on how you know this whole this big production was you know working? You know, Warren Beatty, Julie Christie, Robert Altman had been established. I think he had done Mash right before then. So, what was your sort of take on this grand production coming into you know coming into your life? Um. It, well, I felt that it was life-altering, you know, to be cast, you know, in that movie. But I didn't know how much it was going to change my life. Yeah. I was just happy that I got a job, you know, make my parents happy that I got a job. But little did they know that I was playing a <laughs> prostitute, okay? <laughs> and very happy that they didn't understand much English. So they didn't know what the role, you know, was involved. Yeah. Um, um, so... It was really, you know, interesting because for some reason I've always been interested in theater and in filmmaking. And so being on the set was just, you know, like your dreams being fulfilled. And you see, you know, Warren Beatty is there, Julie Christie. And then because Vancouver has such a small theatrical community, I knew a lot of the people that were cast. So for us, it was just hanging out with friends all day long. Huh. No. What were? Uh, what do you remember? What your first scene was acting in the movie? Oh yeah. <laughs> well, you've seen the movie, right? Yeah. Okay, you know that uh, scene where we're coming up the hill in the rain. Yeah. And that was the first scene. <laughs> and you know we'd go and um, we went to get wardrobe, and so everybody picked out their wardrobe the hats and the shoes and stuff and um, we had actually period shoes like you know ankle boots that, that were tied and so by the time we got done with that scene we were just soaking wet and just miserable because that was in um, September yeah. in Vancouver and once you hit September in Vancouver, into August, into January, it doesn't. It just rains like crazy. So that was the first scene coming up that hill. And that was the atmosphere of the movie. You were in the snow. Yes. You were in the elements, really. Right. And and you know he shot it um, uh, in sequential order. So if it rained one day, and then didn't rain the next day, he was okay because that's how. How oh, continuity-wise, yes, you know, continuity. going back, yeah, you know, right. we haven't filmed the end yet or the beginning or the middle. Right, and then when you saw the town being built, that was actually, you saw the town being built. Yeah, and those are the actors, the actors and the, and the construction crew, they're really kind of the same. It was all kind of one thing. Well, the construction crew became the actors. Yeah, they were all they were in wardrobe. They right, were, they, they were. <laughs> everybody was in wardrobe. You know, I mean, the continuity. Uh, Joan Tewksbury was in wardrobe. Everybody was in wardrobe, and just in case, you know, the camp he decided to put you in, or he'd have an idea, and then you, you know, you'd be in costume. And even when we weren't working, we were on the set. We got dressed and we waited. And then he might have like some, you know, idea, okay, bring in, you know, bring in the horse, and then we'd be there. Um, and um, so it, it, was, it was a real interesting way of working because I really gravitated to, you know, in the improv world because when I was going to theater school, um, my, in fact, you know, I, had, I was in the foods program and then I transferred into the theater program 
And when I went and met the professor, he looked at me and he goes, I suggest you change profession because there's no jobs out there for a Chinese woman. And I go, well, thank you very much, but I just need an opportunity. I yeah. said, take me into the class. I said, and I'll, I'll take care of the rest. And then so the day he passed away, Anthony Holland, he said to me, he goes, I really apologize for saying that. <laughs> I said, you know what? It just motivated me to want to do it more. And yeah. I, I work real well, like on my own anyways. And so for the first year and a half, he just ignored me. So I just like figured things to do. And, uh, you know, the rest of the, the, the class, um, they performed in plays, you know, he was English, so we did a lot yeah. of pinter plays. Oh, what a lovely war. So everybody got a chance to be in there. And then I said, well, I think I'm going to do the sound. I think I'll be the technical director here. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what I did. So I found little, little jobs that I, could, that I could do, mostly because nobody else wanted to do them, yeah. you know. And so then when I came down to L.A., well, after, after the show ended, like, you know, McCabe ended, um, I continued with my improv company. But then everybody else was getting work, you know. And nobody at that time was hiring any Asian woman. And uh, back then there was no film business. So I said, okay, you know, forget it. I'm going to write to Bob or I'm going to call him and say that I want to, you know, come down and observe him. You know, before the title of internship ever came about, um, so I called him, and once again, in, in Bob's yeah. way, he goes, "Do you know how to play poker?" And I go, <laughs> "Well, I can learn." I, I said, "Yeah, kind of." I go, "Why?" He goes, "Well, just be here on January 13th." Okay, so I, within like a week and a half, I was gone, and once again, my mom, my dad, they didn't understand English, you know. But they knew, but I was real adamant about, you know, leaving. And so I came down here on my own. And um, I had a friend that um, I met in school and in church that was going to the um, Pasadena Arts um, Institute. Yeah. So I had a place to stay at least for a week. So then I came down here and I stayed with this friend of mine and um, then, you know, got involved with working with Bob and I'd just be on the set and I'd watch what was going on. And then as the shoot went along, I just decided I would just make my own film program. So every day I would spend the day with a different department. So I'd spend the day with um, Jim Webb and, and Chris McLaughlin. They were um, the sound guys. So I'd just sit there and just watch them and kind of watch what they were doing and yeah. ask, you know, questions, but keeping it, you know, real minimal. Um, and then the camera department I stuck around, hung out with. And then once you know it, that the script girl who was pregnant was really having bad morning sickness. And so I made friends with the script. And so um, he said, so where are you staying? And I go, I don't know, L.A. I said, St. Andrew's place. He goes, oh. That's on my way home to Glendale. He goes, do you need a ride? I go, yeah, that'd be great. Because I was taking the bus to wherever they were going. Wow. And uh, in L.A. That's in L.A., right. <laughs> so anyways, so he came and he picked me up the next... Well, what movie uh, was this, oh, by the way? California was, Split. California Split, okay. L.A. Gould and George Siegel. Right. Wow. And it was a big gambling movie. 
about these two gamblers. Anyways, so Dennis picked me up and he goes, you know, Carol uh, is sick today. He goes, do you know how to hold script? I go, yeah, I did it, you know, when I was in college. Yeah. He goes, okay. So we get on the set and Alan Rudolph was the second AD. So he went up to Alan, he goes, uh, Alan, you know, Carol's sick. So um, Maisie says she can, she knows how to hold script. And Alan looked at me, went over, got the script and gave it to me <laughs> without asking me, right? Are you sure you know how to do this? I mean, so I held script for like three, four days. So I was like right next to the camera. So this was like the most immersive film school like, you could possibly imagine. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, I'm sitting there and of course, the guy, the crew had seen me around. And so they were more than happy to help me because, you know, you're sitting there, you're holding script, you need to know, well, first of all, what lens they were using, and then you have to time it, and then continuity. And at one point, Elliot came up to me and goes, so was my collar in or out? I go, uh, <laughs> gee, what do you think? He goes, I, I think it was in. I said, okay, I'm pr probably in. So a lot of it was just sort of using my improvisational skills yeah. to, you know, move about. And Robert Altman, who was known for improv yes. and collaboration so much with everybody on the set. So he exactly. Was, you know, that was the perfect environment for that. It, you know, it really was. And the really funny thing is that, uh, you know, when you... Uh, watch California Split. Well, he put all his staff in the movie at some point. So Bob Egenweiler was his production lo location manager. And so you see the face of this guy, the manager, talking about how great the casino is. Well, that's him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the voice of the person taking you through the casino was this droney, barely could read kind of voice and it was one of the grips because he, he you know it's that kind of play on reality that he yeah. loved and so if you were around he'd put you in a movie yeah he loves mixing actors with real people yes and playing off their personas right i always thought that was really interesting yeah uh and then so your career with him really spanned a long period of time what was sort of the progression after california split for you in terms of working for him well, after California Split came um, Nashville, I believe. Yeah, which is a huge production. They huge got production. Cast. And so um, I made friends with Scotty Bushnell. And for some reason, well, I have to backtrack a little bit. Because there was this producer named Scott Bushnell. She was on California Split. So the other thing happened, too, was because I stayed... Um, I, I would be on the set every day and I met a wardrobe man called Huey and I can't remember his last name but he was like a wardrobe man to Fred Astaire, wow. uh, Bob, um, oh god, married to Natalie Wood. Oh, uh, uh, Robert Wagner. Robert Wagner yeah. and so he kind of took a liking to me because we'd stand there in, in the back and, and he, had, he had a fedora on, a three-piece suit and he would always joke, right? So he would say to me, he goes, okay, you stand right next to me. So when they say wardrobe, you run over there and ask them, what do you need? <laughs> because he was in his 70s, right? I figured yeah. it out. Because he wasn't going to be running to the truck. <laughs> so, so sure enough, they go, wardrobe. I go, what can I do? You know, what do you need? He goes, oh, you know, we need a change of this and this. You know, go to the 
the the honey wagon and get this this off I'd go and I'd come back and give it to them and he'd go thumbs up right and so the woman that was doing the costume at that time was Scotty Bushnell who later became um, a producer and she chain smoked and she never she didn't like many people you know kind of like scowl yeah. at you <laughs> I could say that I mean she's passed away but if she's still alive I would say this Say the same thing and so somehow she took a liking to me and then um, she found out that I could sew and so when it came time for to work on when Nashville was happening um, she hired me to be the PA for the wardrobe department wow. and so then I traveled to Nashville now if you look at the credits the upfront credits to Nashville he lists all the production assistants up there Nobody does that, yeah. right? So we all got credit up front. Very rare to have. Very know, rare. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. And then also the opening of Nashville, when you see Lily Tomlin, right, singing, and there's these people sitting in the booth. Well, the guy with the big handle mustache was the wardrobe man. Next to him was the DP's wife, and then the kids were their kids, right? So. So if you ever worked on any of his shows, it's all like these, this inside joke, you know, as to who's <laughs> in it and who's doing what and who's not acting. And so that, so that was Nashville. And then I went uh, with her and then Alan Heifel was actually the official costume designer. And so the three of us worked um, in wardrobe. And so I was on the set all the time. And then at the end of the shoot, um, Scotty had, had lost patience with some of these actors, you know? Yeah. And then if she didn't, if she was having an issue with them, she wouldn't talk to them. She'd send me over there to talk to so them. So you were kind of the go-between. Yeah, right. The yeah. <laughs> and so the final scene at the Parthenon, she goes, all right. She goes, those, those guys are really pissing me off. She goes, okay, I want you to go tell them that if they're not dressed and ready, they're not going to be in this last scene. Okay, so here I go. I go knock, 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 all the way down, right? And they all poke their heads out. I go, okay, Scotty said that if you guys aren't dressed in five minutes, you're not going to be in this last scene. Got it? And they go, got it. And then off, everybody got dressed and off they went, right? <laughs> it was, it was, you know, it was real interesting because in a way it was real empowering because I finally met people that just sort of like, well, here, do this, and then you go off and yeah. you do it. And they trusted you. And they, they trusted you. Could do it. Yeah. Right. So then after that, um, Nashville, um, I hung out with the editors on Nashville, and there's a whole bunch of other crazy stuff that happened there. I mean, it was like Animal House in filmmaking. Yeah, you read about Robert Altman's life during that time. It was almost <laughs> like it was this very uh, sort of. I remember he like he had lived on a house in, in Malibu and. That's where he edited and did a lot of the production, pre-production for the films. Well, he did, like, that was later, but during the, the early days, you see, a lot of people don't know, I mean, they only know the, all, the Bob's side of the story. Nobody knows this side of the story where I come from. And so, during Nashville, during the finishing editing of Nashville, um, I was doing research for Buffalo Bill. Yeah, with Paul Newman. With uh, Paul Newman. Yeah, yeah. And then Alan Rudolph wrote the script, and so I was doing, you know, research. 
And every day, like my, you know, desk faced the door, and it was a swinging door, you'd hear these footsteps go running by, and then second pair of footsteps go running by. And one day, I heard the first set of footsteps go by, and I swung the door open, and I hear splash. And I looked around, mm -hmm. and here's the editor chasing another editor with a bucket of water. <laughs> now we're dealing with electronics here. So I opened the door, he hit the water, the water hit the door and it hit him. And he's standing there and he's soaking wet from head to toe. <laughs> now is this a typical day that in was a the, typical uh, day. the almond world? <laughs> and then another day, I, you know, I had two doors. So one was in the hallway and the other went outside and then you could come through the kitchen and come. There were a lot of doorways to go in and out. So I'm hearing like clink, 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 clink in front of my door. And for whatever reasons, I went out the back door, came around, and there were all these editors. They were stacking up reels, hoping that if I opened the door, it would all fall on me, right? <laughs> and I just tapped show. on them and go, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing out here? I go, so that was a typical day. A typical day, and that's why it, it was so much fun, you know, to go to work, and and in the process, you learned so much because you never felt you were, you know, you, you were, you know, people were teaching you. Yeah, it was a very inclusive environment. Everybody yes. Could, yes. You could learn from everybody around you, and was it at that point that you really knew that you wanted to work in editing, or did that kind of? Um, it happened, I think, in um, on Buffalo Bill, and um, because I was looking around and at that point I had aspirations of you know directing and um, I said you know if I really want to do that then well editing seems like the perfect place yeah. uh, because they were so generous in allowing me to come in and watch them uh, work and so I just sit there in the corner and just watch the dynamics of what they were doing with the scene and stuff like that and and then back um, backtracking to um, California Split so one of my, my, my uh, uh, little classes that I made up for myself was I went and talked to Lou Lombardo. Now Lou, I knew through McCabe and Mrs. Miller because he was the editor. And so he was the editor on California Split. And I said to him one day, I said, Lou, you know, I'd love to come by and see what you do, you know, how, how you're going to edit this movie. Yeah. And he said to me, he goes, okay, I'll be there tomorrow at 8 o'clock. Right, so off I went. I was there at eight o'clock in the morning. I sat next to him while he was cutting. Now, Lou Lombardo did the dirty, I mean, um, um, Sam Peckinpah's. Oh, the Wild Bunch. The Wild yeah. Bunch, where he created the so called four frame cut and all that stuff. And so here I was, you know, once again, you know, working with somebody at the top of their game who'd been in the business for 20 some odd years and allowing me to sit next to him and kind of asking for my opinion as to, so what do you think of that? Um, should I do this or should I do that? And then so we kind of, and then he goes, well, let's just, let's ask Bob what he thinks. And of course, Bob comes and goes, well, I don't like that. <laughs> that doesn't work. Why don't you do this, this, and this, right? And so, so that's, that was the dynamics. I mean, to this day, I'm very close, still very close to, those people that I've met when I first came down so that was here. a big family environment. Huge. In Robert Altman's world. Yes. I mean, if we were on location, um, 
and there was a holiday, like we were in Nashville during the 4th of July, he had this huge 4th of July party for the entire crew. And then um, when we were doing Buffalo Bill, he, there was, um, I think Labor Day, we were up there, and he had this huge Labor Day party and with base, beer baseball. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, everybody wanted you to play baseball with them, <laughs> beer softball. And so every time you, you swung and you missed and you had a strike, everybody on your team had to drink a beer. Well, after three beers at 10 o'clock in the morning, I went and found Will Smith, uh, um, the, the, the Indian. Um, yes. Oh, from? Uh, from Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's yes. Nest. That's so I said to Will, I go, Will, I go, you, you got to help me out here. I said, I can't drink <laughs> anymore. Would you mind drinking for me? No problem. And, you know, that. And then, of course, everybody's on the center field. You know, they're all stretched out laying there because they're all like, drunk but all having a good time <laughs> from reading about Robert Altman's work during that period and even later he seemed to really just enjoy you know the process of being on the set and making the movie and he was so relaxed in a way yes where it seems like a lot of directors would be like okay I have all this pressure coming down on me you know that would be so tense but he just seemed to be so easygoing and you know was willing to have fun is that the case most uh, of the time? yeah I mean it, it was you know after um, a night, a day shoot, like when I was on a wedding, um, if you were uh, in his office after dailies, then he'd look around and goes, you guys hungry? He goes, okay, let's go have dinner. And he'd take like 13 or 14 of us out. We never paid anything. Nowadays, you go out with a director for lunch, they're like, oh, I left my wallet at the <laughs> office. And you're like, right. You know, so so he he was very very generous, and he'd have these huge Christmas parties where he invited everybody on uh, in the Malibu colony. Well, he knew everybody, you know, and um, so um, apparently, well, Ringgold Starr came by one time. Uh -huh. um, Barbara Streisand came by with John Peters, which he threw threw them out of the office because John Peters pissed them off because he criticized Nashville or something like that. So he kicked them out. <laughs> so so the other thing that would happen too is that during football season, yeah. everybody'd be like, "Okay, did you? Okay, which team did he bet on? Did it win or did it did he lose?" And so. If you lost, then you're like real careful. You don't go into this office like right. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but if he won, then it was really great, you know. But he wasn't, you know, he was an avid gambler, really. Yeah, yeah no, I read about that in the, uh, I think the book I read was the oral history of Robert Altman, where mm -hmm. it kind of like goes from different people discussing him, and it's. Uh, yeah, football. Yeah. Was his favorite thing, <laughs> and no, so um, yeah, so then from. Buffalo Bill, um, I think we did three women after that. Yeah, three women, which is a big hit at Cannes that year, I think. Right. Rise. So <clears throat> I was at that time, you know, living with Scotty at, in a place in Brentwood, and um, a Saturday morning phone rings, and she's on the phone talking to somebody. So I get up, you know, I clean, you know, I go up. To, to the to the dining room and I'm having my coffee and she hangs up. I go, who's that? She goes, that's Bob. 
he had a dream. We're making a movie called Three Women. <laughs> that story is true that he had this dream. It is true. And he, uh, images was the script, same right? thing. Really? The movie Images, which you, nobody can know, but it's lost somewhere. It's not lost. It's hidden somewhere because of all this litigation he yeah. had. I watched it years and years ago, but I don't think today it's available no. anywhere. But I, I had the fortune of watching it, you know, many times, and um, because he would bring films on location and screen them like, you know, a Friday night or a Saturday night. And so images, same thing. He had a dream, and I think he wrote that script in like a day or two. And Three Women was the same thing, only it changed a little bit because in the original dream, it was these three women working um, at a lab, like a deluxe or technicolor. And their job, the mundane job, was looking at prints to make sure that yeah. they were <laughs> properly timed. And then from that, it, 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 the gen, then it evolved into being in Palm Springs, taking care of old people. Yeah, in, this, in this spa. Yes, sort of, yeah. Desert Spring. And so I'm walking down the hall one day, and he, he passes me, and he goes, you're Doris, you're going to Palm Springs. I go, okay. And so the next thing I know, I'm in Palm Springs, <laughs> in a movie, yet again. Yeah. So and this um, was Shelley Duvall and yes, Sissy Spacek. Yes, Sissy Spacek, yeah. We had such, and Belita Marino, and the four, the four of us, really bonded real well. And Belita Marino has remained one of my best friends, you know, from the first time I ever met her. So you, you, you because it, there's such a camaraderie and everybody just so open and it's like a huge family. I mean, they pick on you and they make fun of you and you know that if they didn't like you, they wouldn't be making fun of you. So, <laughs> and, and that's, you know, what happened. And the interesting thing that happened after, um, so, so on uh, Buffalo Bill, um, I was walking down the hallway and Bob had shot like a million feet of film. And I'm just telling you, the hallway from the end of this hallway to the next, maybe two, another hallway down. Yeah. It was just bins and bins of film. Now, for most, People, the editors that, that grew up digitally that have no concept of what that looked like, you know. And so I, I was walking down the hallway and as I got closer, I'd see all this film out on the floor, out. And I, you know, three more bins down and I'd see, it was like a cartoon. It was one of the editors, his, half of his body was in the bin and his feet was almost like sticking out of it and there's film just flying out, right? So I go up to him, I tap him, I go, Dennis, what are you doing? <laughs> he looked at me, he goes, I'm looking for two frames of picture. <laughs> and I go, uh, well, it looks like you guys need help in reconstituting this stuff. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, we need help. I said, well, I think I could do this. He goes, yeah, I think you could do it. <laughs> he goes, but you gotta go ask Bob. I'm like, oh God. Okay, fine. So I walk across the the I walk to um, to into Bob's office, <clears throat> and at that time, when when he was real healthy, you know, um, he he just looked like he was seven feet tall because he was very big, you know, had a 
real big presence about broad him. Shoulders broad and, shoulders yeah. and, you know, the, the goatee and, and kind of like usually, you know, look up with one eyebrow raised. And um, I said, Bob, um, the editors need an apprentice to help them reconstitute the film. I think I can do it. And he looked at me and he goes, this isn't a film school, you know. <laughs> and so I said to him, I go, well, I, yeah, I know that. I said, but they still need somebody to help them with the million feet of film that you shot. Yeah. Okay? And so he looked at me and goes, well, if it's okay with the, with the guys, it's okay with me. I said, it's okay with the guys. And then I ran out as fast as I could before it changed his mind, right? And so that's where I got started was um, it, reconstituting the dailies on Buffalo Bill. And then on Three Women, I then got into the union. And then I became Dennis's assistant on Three Women. And so when I was acting, after I finished acting, I would go into the cutting room and help Dennis. Yeah. You know, with, um, well, he was still cutting on the cam. So, um, and, and that just went on until, um, I, until they locked the picture, and then when they locked the picture, then I got put into the sound department. So I learned all about sound editing as well. I learned about music, and I learned about mix, how, you know, mixing on the stage, the kind of dialogue and the kind of phrases you use you know, to, to uh, tell your re-recording mixer how you want it to sound. And I became lifelong friends with Richard Portman, who taught me everything about sound. Yeah. It was interesting on a Robert Altman movie because supposedly he would mic each individual yes. actor so he would be able to, you know, intercut dialogue and he became very famous for that. Yes. Because there was so much improvisation on the movies that that was part of the process. It had to happen that way. Well, he tried to do that on McCabe, you know, but the, but the sound recordist, well, first of all, he was deaf. Which is really funny. Deaf sound recorders. <laughs> deaf sound recorders. <laughs> so one day, one of the actors said to me, "Goes the guy's deaf." I go, "How do you know?" Watch. So he called the guy's name like three or four times. The guy never responded. Right? That's scary. So when so he got into a lot of trouble, well, even in Mash, because he had people overlapping dialogue, you know, on yeah. Mash, and and then in Nashville, he per, kind of perfected that. And here's another funny story. So. I'm at um, the motel at, um, in Nashville, and I see um, a white, the white van, production van. I, I kind of recognize it because it was one of the office vans. And I knew that Dennis and Tony Lombardo, they were driving across country yeah. with Jack Cashin and Jim Webb. They were building the eight-track recorder in the back of the van while they were driving across country. And that would be the technology yes. to, to record right. all the sound for Nashville. Right. So when they came when they came into the parking lot, they opened the door. I swear to God, there was a cloud of smoke that came out, and <laughs> then there was all these boxes that came flying out. Well, it happened to be the one of the guys didn't have a suitcase, so he packed all his clothes in a trim trim box, and out they wheeled this eight track, you know. Pro, uh, prototype which he used through his entire career directing mm. and you, you're right everybody got mic'd so he never did group ADR which always sounds fake and um, in one of the scenes in Nashville 
in the nightclub, um, there was like a, a guest executive that showed up. Anyways, so they slapped a mic on him and then put two people next to him. And so they recorded their conversation. And, and Alan was really good at that, like a second unit director, right? He'd go over and, and he'd give them like bits of things to do. And then they take off and improvise. And um, that was the, the background track. And he did that on the player. Same thing, he mic'd the tables. So you, so you got that realism, <clears throat> and you got the ambience, yeah. you know, that came along Where with typically it. on a movie, you would just have sort of, you would plug in background sound. Right. You know, through, you know, the actors are talking, and then you would just pick up, you know, random generic sound. But he wanted that natural atmosphere in there. Well, you know, yes. And what also um, was good was, you know, when, when you're working, like, uh, with extras, the because production doesn't want to pay them anything to say anything. So they're mouthing these ridiculous, who knows what they're mouthing. So when you go into loop group, right? Yeah. Now you got to figure out, well, what is he saying? Is he saying, yes, I will do it, or yes, you are a doo-doo head, or whatever. <laughs> so, you, you know, so you, it, the realism um, and the ambience, it, it was just, you know, once you, you grow up in, in, in the business with that kind of realistic uh, sound and recording and shooting with two cameras. So when you go on a show and they go, well, the DP says it's like, it's impossible to do it two cameras. I go, sorry. I said, wrong. <laughs> I said, Altman used to do it all the time. I said, it's one of the reasons why DPs don't want to do it is because the amount of lighting you have to do. You know, you've got to light it almost, well, both Light sides. the entire yes. area. Yes, yeah. right. But then, then part of that uh, for Bob is you like the whole entire area so that your actors have that freedom of moving about. Yeah. And they don't have to worry about stiffed. hitting marks and right. everything. They can really just be part of the atmosphere, right. part of the environment. And he had like some of the best uh, people in their craft. I mean, I don't know, um, you know the opening shot to Buffalo Bill that long pan, must be a five minute pan. Well, Eddie Coons, we used to call him Steady Eddie because, <laughs> because he did that whole thing, in, well, in one take, I think he did it twice, and then landed on, on the um, old soldier. Well, the old soldier was a, um, an extra, and so Bob just gave him the lines to, yeah. to speak the words, <laughs> right? So having a good crew allows you to do your thing. And um, um, there was another way that they hired a crew, right? So um, when Tommy Thompson was his uh, producer and first AD, one of the best ever in the business, had to hire a craft service guy for um, California Split. He goes, I don't, how do I know who's good? Okay. Uh, let's start from the end of the alphabet. Whose name is starts with a Z? I'll hire that guy. So my friend Lynn Zuckerman shows up, right? And he was like an old hippie. And he hired him on the spot. He didn't even ask him, well, what have you done? You know, what's your resume? He just walked in and he hired him because he liked the, the, liked the vibes, right? Yeah. So when you're working with Bob, it, it, they don't care about what you've done. It's like, think the chemistry. 
Do you have the chemistry to be part of this group? And you could tell right away when someone enters that, that group that everybody kind of looks at like, okay, we got bets on how long that guy's gonna be around. <laughs> be, because th there's a certain vibe of all those people that have worked with him. There's a, a calmness, you know? Yeah. Hey, you know, we know what we're doing. We got the job, we're not auditioning for the next job. And we don't have to impress him because he's already hired us. And people really wanted to stay and work with him from film to film. Yes. That was really key. He collaborated with the same people uh, continuously. Well, he, he'd have, like, he would say, well, you know, he'd hire, like, less, lesser known DPs. And then he'd let them go when they asked for too much money. So that's how, <laughs> how, how that, you know, went. So, so there's this, a group of people that would do, like, three shows. And then next time they do another show, well, that DP wasn't yeah. on it anymore. But he gave them a really great opportunity. And from there, those DPs went on. Yeah. And like Vilmish some... uh, Zygmunt, who yes. worked with a number of times. Was McCabe. Yeah. <clears throat> McCabe was the first one that he did. And then he did Images. And then... Um, I think Long Goodbye. Long Goodbye. Yeah, which is beautifully shot. Yes. And that camera never stops moving in that movie. I mean... It just keeps floating, you know, every shot. So there's constant movement, you know, in, in that movie. Yeah, I remember even the scene between Sterling Hayden and Elliot Gould, yes. uh, which is outside their house in mm -hmm. Malibu, and that it just keeps moving and moving and moving. Yeah. I always wondered maybe that probably was a little difficult to edit because, they, you know, the camera was moving so much on that. But it looks so beautiful. Yeah, I think, yeah, I never talked to Lou about, you know, editing of that, you know, show. But... I, I, yeah, it's difficult because you've got to find the right timing to get into, if you want to get into the close-up of the other person. Yeah. You know, because I've done movies where people have done that. And it's like, okay, now. <laughs> so you want to, when you want to cut away from <laughs> yeah, right. someone, and it's like the camera's over there, and it's like right. busying. But for some reason, it works so well in that film. Well, I think that a lot of time. well, with, with Bob, he wasn't showing off. It wasn't like, okay, I... I'm gonna do a 360 camera move. Well, now you know when you watch, you know that happen in movies or TV shows. You go, okay, the guy's showing off, you know, because <laughs> it's kind of a gimmicky thing. A gimmicky yeah. thing. Um, but with Bob, on three women, he had a gyro. Did you do you remember that? He had like a wave machine that he shot through. It was like a panel. And there was water. And you put that in front of the camera. Yes. Wow. So he put that in front of it to get a, a, a certain uh, feeling. I think when she went into the dream sequences or something. Um, I, only, I only remember seeing it um, in the office that he was playing around with that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you always love to sort of manipulate the image and make it, make it uh, especially in those films from Images, Long Goodbye. And uh, three women, you know, the the way everything was like, it was like you were in a dream. Right. It was very much like a dream type atmosphere. Well, what's interesting was when he got what we found, he found that motel, and then it had a swimming pool in it, and by chance there was a guy painting these images in the bottom of the pool. So that kind of triggered things off in you know in his mind and. 
so you know a lot of things happen serendipitously you know for yeah. him but he was so open he was like let's, let's yeah use let's it. use yeah. that that becomes of, like a big motif for the yes. film to have that in there right that imagery right and um, in Nashville, when the drum majorettes and when Ronnie Blakely comes off her private jet, and then you saw American Airlines go by, oh, that was just, that wasn't even, t I mean, that was, wasn't a setup. <laughs> it was just happened, you know? And so, um, and I think you're, you're right. Those things happen for, for, um, directors who embrace that kind of, you know, coincidences. Then we call it the, like happy coincidences that 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 happen and yeah. makes the film more, you know, realistic. And in that sense, how hard is it? How hard is it to edit a Robert Altman film because there's so much improvisation and he's taking in so much? It must be tricky sometimes to sort of, you know, because there could be so many different ways that he's approaching a scene to kind of condense it down and to find. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I asked them that one time. I go, okay, so you got 35,000 feet. What do I do with this stuff? And he goes, just pick the good stuff. I go, oh, thanks. You know, <laughs> pick the good stuff. So, so um, well, I have to tell you a story about um, the player because at that time I had moved up to being an editor and of course Scotty found out that because I kept in touch with her she called me up she goes look there's this one scene the opening of uh, the museum um, and we've got some issues with the footage and um, when are you going to be available and I says well you know I'm, I'm finishing you know this one movie um, so what what do you need and she goes well I want you to talk to Bob and I want you to come and you know talk to him and and talk to him about the footage. So then Bob gets on the phone and he goes, oh, I hear you're you know, editing now. He goes, you know, um, I had second unit shoot the, the actors coming in and for some reason we got the back of their heads and we got some, we could see some, some of it. He goes, anyways, he goes, I want you to come and watch the dailies. So I go down to Santa Monica and I'm in a screening room by myself, right? And all the time I'm watching it, he had shot 35,000 feet of dailies. Okay, now we're talking film. So, you know, it's going regular speed. Yeah. 10 minutes of reel, 10, I don't know, that'd be like three and a half hours worth of film. <laughs> I sat and watched. So as we're watching it, I kept saying to myself, I go, I know what's gonna happen. That when I walk through that, when I walk out of the theater, he's gonna ask me what I think or how to solve this problem, yeah. right? I go, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm talking to myself. I go, what am I going to say to him? I don't know. So anyways, I finish, finish it. Sure enough, I walk outside and he's right there. I go, so what do you think? <laughs> what, what, what should I do with this? And I go, well, what about, well, how about you treat it like E.T.? You know, you have like an announcer in, in um, doing a voiceover and then all the good footage. You just have them announce all these actors and then you put a banner and pretend it was Entertainment Tonight. He, stop, he pauses for a, a beat and he goes, Scotty, I've got this great idea how to fix the museum footage. <laughs> We're going to treat it like E.T. I go, okay, great. Got out of that one. <laughs> so, um, but you see, when, when you're working with someone who trusts you and allows you to trust your intuition, 
you work better. I find I work a lot better than a director who micromanages you. Yeah, he's hovering over you the whole time while you're trying to put together a cut. Right, yeah. and then at some point, I know other editors, the same thing happens. You go, okay, fine, you tell me where to cut. And I did that one time with a director, right? He's sitting next to me, he goes, okay, so trim's here and then cut here and then trim there. I said, okay. He goes, all right, cut here. Fine. Cut here, cut here and cut here. Put it together and he goes, well, that's awful. <laughs> I go, then why did you tell me to cut here and here and here? You know? I said, you want me to m make it smooth, right? He goes, yeah. yes. So, <laughs> sit back. And, and, and that happened on, you know, when I did Freeway, you know, talking about, you know, completely, it's become a cult film now. That's Reese Witherspoon and yes. uh, Kiefer Sutherland. Yes. And Matthew Bright, he was, oh, he was a character. And we got along, you know, really, really well. Um, and um, I don't know, I could tell you stories that, uh, about, about um, Matthew that th if this, in this day and age, if I was a different person, yeah. I looked at him one day because he was drawing pornographic cartoons on my chalkboard. I go, you know, Matthew, I said, if I was any other type of woman, I'd sue your ass for sexual harassment. And he'd laugh, right? And we'd all have a big chuckle. Yeah. And so, but, but um, on, on that show, you know, once again, after they finished shooting, he'd sit and he'd tell me where to cut. And so I used to have a rubber chicken in my cutting room <laughs> to do the really bad cuts. I, I did. It would be hanging from the ceiling. And so at that point, he goes, I want you to cut here, 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 and here. I go, I'm not doing it. I said, that has got to be the worst cut. I said, it'll jar me out of my seat. No, it won't. I want you to do it. I go, okay, fine. So I grabbed the rubber chicken, and I gave him the rubber chicken, right? I go, here, you make the rubber chicken make this cut, because I'm not, I'm not going to be responsible for that cut, okay? So <laughs> he took the rubber chicken claw and then pressed, cut, 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 and then took it up, put it back up on the ceiling, and he looked at it, he goes, yeah, that's pretty bad. He goes, okay, so this is how it works, right? He goes, I just lay there, I take a nap, I tell you what to do, and then you do it, and then I wake up from my nap. I go, yeah, that's it. You don't have to tell me. Tell me what emotion you want from this scene, yeah. or did you shoot it the way you wanted, or did you screw up, and then now I gotta fix it? And so, that was the kind of relationship, you know, we had. And, um, so the first time I met him on the set, he, um, Danny Halstead was the producer, and he goes, I want you to sit there and I want you to come out and watch dailies with him. He's not watching the dailies at lunch. I go, okay. So they're shooting in September, hot, really hot, San Fernando rundown motel. Yeah. So I go out there and I see Matt and I go, I said, hey, I said, uh, Danny wants me to sit at lunch and watch dailies with you. And he goes, I know what I have. I don't want to watch it. I go, please, can we just go and watch the dailies? So we go into this, this little motel room, this 
I'm sure there were fleas around. Anyways, it was like real dirty. So I sat sat on the edge of the bed, and he said to me, he goes, you know, the reason why I don't watch dailies is because at lunch I take a nap. I said, okay, whatever. I said, you do whatever you need to do. I'll sit here and watch dailies. So I'm sitting there watching dailies with the production designer, right? Sure enough, two minutes into it, there's like snoring up a storm. And so finished watching dailies. I go, I wake him up. I go, Matt. I said, um, it's time to go back to work. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, great. He goes, you know what? Do you know what watching dailies is like? He goes, I'd rather be masturbating than watching my own dailies. I know what I have. I go, okay. So now we're walking out of the motel. And here comes Danny Halstead. He's coming towards me, right? Matthew just takes a beeline. He's back on the set. So how did it go? I said, well, this is what he said. He said he'd rather be masturbating than watching his own dailies. Okay. <laughs> he just walked away and shook his head. And so from that point on, I mean, yeah. Matthew and I got along really, really well. I mean, I would say that, that my relationship with him is like one of the most honest relationships. Because he would call me up and he goes, so what does it look like? I go, well, because I screwed up, didn't I? And I go, yeah, you really did. I said, what were you thinking? You put the camera here and did this? And he goes, okay, okay, uh, I'll do better. So, so with other directors, I don't feel comfortable, you know? Yeah, because it's hard to have that open dialogue where you can feel comfortable sharing your opinion on, you know, on both ends. Well, your truthful yeah. opinion, because you, you have to do it in a diplomatic way because they're under so much pressure to produce something amazing, you know, yeah, in their head, amazing, yeah. and so much is on the line that, um, and their ego is very fragile when they're shooting. You know, you don't want to go and say to the director like, wow, that really sucked. What are you thinking about, right? But with him, I was able to do that in, in a very freeing way, and um, I, we were able to help each other, I think. And with other, you know, directors, you just have to, you call up the producers first, <laughs> right? Yeah. And say, um, do you guys read the tech reports? Yes. There's something out of focus, right? I go, yeah, there's something out of focus. I think you need to go and tell the director that. Okay, fine. So then later on you develop a relationship with the director because sometimes he doesn't believe that the producers are telling him the truth. They're telling him anything. Yeah. And and I've gotten that phone call one time, like, you know, director asking me about a shot. You know, why is it that shot's out of focus? I go, he goes, what about take two? I go, it's out of focus too. Why didn't anybody tell me this? And I go, well, you know, your, your produ producers and production managers, everybody gets the tech reports. Yeah. And I was told not to tell you any of this. So you hear him going, and he's screaming. Now he's calling all the producers in, hangs up. And I said, ah, you know what? I don't know why they did that. I said, but I'm not, you know, in my head, I'm not yeah. taking the fall for what you guys are. Why are you protecting him? He needs to know, you know, so that they can go back and fix it. Because I said, there's no way that I'm not going to say anything because 
if I'm watching the dailies and something weird is happening, I have to tell him because I don't want him coming into my cutting room when he's sitting next to me going, that's out of focus, why didn't you tell me? Yeah. I don't ever want that conversation, you know? So that it always, it has to be... A, it's so hard to navigate the politics around right. everybody's position on the movie. You have to. I, I think that um, one of my mentors, Danny Green, he said, you know what, what we do, cutting the movie, that's, that's the easy part. He goes, the politics is the hard part, is that you got to know going into, onto a show where everybody is. What their agendas are yes. and everything. What their agenda is, and so that you know how to work. Yeah, you, know, you have to know how to work it. You have to know how to navigate, better word, you have to navigate through all of the, you know, traps. Because sometimes you think somebody's on your side and then you see something that happens and you go, okay, now I kind of get where that person's coming from. And I tell, you know, my assistants that all the time. And then a lot of times they get like, oh, dude, that guy really ticks me off. I go, you know what, patience. Because it's all going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's all going to fall down around them. So <laughs> I'm not going to worry about it. And it, it and it has. You know, people that that play games. You know, trying to pit you against somebody. No. We don't yeah. do that. Yeah. No, it's a tough. Uh, it's a tough area to navigate, especially when the director is so coddled and he's not being told, you know, the truth about what's going on. Right. You know, and at the end of the day, you're not doing him a favor you know it's the same thing as like raising kids you're not doing them a favor by by not disciplining them you want to be their best friend well, that's not going to happen you know you're the parent and so i kind of look at it that way you know as well is that you know being an editor you're a leader in your department people look up to you and you know you you have to lead by example is that I stand up, if it, anybody yells at my crew, you know, and that's happened on a couple of occasions where a producer has called up my assistant and yelled at them for not getting their dailies before the other person. And I got on the phone one time and I go, you know what, that's not okay because I don't talk to my assistant that way. I said, you're gonna get your dailies. I said, I don't know why you didn't get yours first. I said, now we know, so you will get yours first. But. But there's no way I'm going to put up with you talking to my assistant like that. Next thing you know, she calls and apologizes, you know, to the assistant. And I, I think that's really important, you know, loyalty um, in the cutting room. If, I'm, if I stand up for you as an assistant, then I would expect you to be loyal to me and watch my back and take care of the cutting room so that nothing falls through the cracks before we have a screening, you know? And so um, I value that a lot. Oh, definitely. I think that's vital to, uh, you know, there's just so many, everybody has an ego, you know, as you were mentioning, you know, producer, one producer gets the footage before the other, they assume, oh, I'm second tier now. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I was curious about uh, how you got involved editing The Player, because I believe that was the first film where you were uh, fully credited as an editor, is that right? Um, actually, There Goes My Baby was the second, okay. the, that was the first one. So the genesis of, of, of my, tr my road to being an editor was um, when I was assisting Dennis Hill, we were supposed to do a, a, move, uh, a second movie together. 
um, we worked on Major League together. And so uh, Dennis got another job, but that job fell through. And I met a post-production supervisor on that show. And, you know, I went to her office, gave her the list of, you know, what we needed in the cutting room. And she's sort of doing my job, you know, helping her out. And she really, really appreciated that because then her friend Danny Green called her up and said, I'm looking for an assistant because I'm doing a fixer, fix, fix it job. So she recommended me to him and then he hired me on over the phone. And that was working with Jonathan Crane's group. And back then, Jonathan had this idea, well, first of all, how to exploit, you know, people that want to move up to the next tier. Yeah. That he would pay. He, he was would, uh, John Travolta's manager, yes. is that right? Okay. Yes. I think he just, he passed away last year. Yeah. Sally Kellerman's husband. So I, so see, you know, it's, it's like a full circle, you know, I, Sally Kellerman who had worked with Robert with Altman. Altman. So I times. would, I knew Sally before she married Jonathan, right? So then when I met Jonathan, why knew Sally's anyways? So, um, he had this company and so Danny, uh, worked on a show and then Danny left and then left me in charge of the show. And then when, then there was another show where another editor left and then Jonathan, once again, it was that kind of trust issue. Yeah. For whatever reasons, he goes, okay, I want you to be on this show, work on, you know, on, on this show with this director. And so that's how that all transpired. And then when Danny was doing There Goes My Baby, he called me up and he goes, look, I'm gonna, I'm doing this movie called There Goes My Baby and I need you come and work as the first assistant. And I said to him, I go, no. I said, I don't want to be first assistant anymore. I said, you know, I want to edit. And he goes, well, this editor, this director is noted for hiring a second editor once he finishes shooting. And I said to Danny, I go, you have to promise me that. I said, if you don't promise me that and that doesn't happen, I said, I'm going to quit. Okay. And he goes, don't worry, darling. Don't, you know, he was real old school. Don't worry, darling. He goes, everything's going to be fine. He goes, Oh, and by the way, he wants you to train his girlfriend to be the apprentice. Click. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so we're sitting in dailies and there's a protocol that happens when you're in any situation where there's a director and producer. Is that if a producer or director asks the assistant what they think, you have to defer back to the editor. You know, and so this is what was happening. The director, Floyd Mutrix, for some reason would ask me what I thought was the best take. You know, when we were watching dailies, he'd be sitting behind me. And I go, um, and then I look at Danny. I go, so Danny, what, what do you think? And Danny goes, no, go tell him. And so after, after like um, a couple, after that happened, I went outside and I said to Danny, I said, I really feel uncomfortable you know, doing this. I said, is it, all, is it all right for me to express my opinion about what I think? He goes, yeah, don't worry about it, go ahead. And so when it was time to, to find a second editor, Danny fulfilled his commitment and suggested me. And because I think the other producers, there were four other producers, they saw how I interacted with this director and they said, yeah, move her up. Because if any one of them had said, no, she's not ready, or we don't like her, or she's got issues, yeah. right? That would have been it. 
And so I worked as a second editor on that show with Danny. And once again, I had this relationship with this director who would just do stuff that would be like, cha like would challenge you, you know? And one day he's sitting, he, he would say stuff like, well, with that cut, you just ruined my movie. <laughs> and then he'd hit play. So then I'd stop it. I go, who wrote this shit anyways? Don't blame my editing. And then he'd hit the thing and off, you know, like nothing would happen. <laughs> and off we'd go. I mean, it was just the weirdest relationship. But in, on that show, it really taught me how to pick my fights of what was important. And, and, um, and on one occasion, he, he got, you know, he told me to do, make a change. And I made the change, but it wasn't the change he wanted. So he came into my room and he started screaming at me, called me stupid, you know, you're worthless, you're useless. Then I snapped. Then it just was like, okay, first of all, you don't fucking talk to me that way. Second of all, I've had it. So I go into Danny's room, I go into the editor's room, and he's hearing all this commotion. He goes, what's going on? I go, this so-and-so came in and said all this stuff to me. I said, I'm not taking it, right? You know what he did? He turned around, walked into his room, shut the door. And that's when I realized that being, first of all, being a woman in this business, you have to be strong. You have to know what's worth fighting for and what the consequences are. Because at that point, I was like, I don't care, fire me. Because I'm not, you're not abusing me. Not another minute, okay? I said, you're not gonna do that to me. And so, went back into my room and had this epiphany about what I just said. And once you know it, he came back, the director came back into my room and he goes, okay, let's go have lunch. I go, I'm not having lunch with you. She just pissed me off. Oh, no, 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 you like to go so-and-so and so-and-so. And so, so it was interesting because working with, I have to say it, this is gonna sound chauvinistic, working with men and working with women. Men kind of like, okay, it's done, it's over, we're moving on. With working with women, that would never happen. It would never happen because I, th I think it's just, uh, it's just different, you know, different um, dynamics in dynamics. terms of how they would handle an argument yes. and right. how they would navigate that. Right. And so, uh, and, and it happened one other time and, and, um, and, he, and, he, and he pulled the same thing on me, right? He goes, you know, you, you, know, you said that my son wasn't good in this movie uh, to the producer. I go, I didn't say that. He goes, yeah, well, I really don't appreciate it. Okay, fine, whatever had another argument. Okay, let's go have lunch. And then, so the, the big thing is, it's trusting your intuitions. And, and I keep going back to my improv work because my improv work taught me that even in situations like that where it's really tense, um, and I've been in other situations where it's been really tense where, oh, on freeway, Kiefer Sutherland came in um, you know, to do some looping. And so he didn't know why he had to loop and where was the director? <laughs> I go, um, 
I think he left for Thanksgiving. And so a producer tried to lie to him what, to why he was there. And they got, and Kiefer just turned on him. He goes, I, go, I know what's going on. You know, this is all bullshit. He goes, I'm calling my agent. So he's on, on the phone calling his agent. He goes, I've had it. He goes, I don't know where the director is. He's probably roasting marshmallows in some campsite. I don't know, but I'm not staying here for another minute. So while he's outside making the phone call, the producer says to me, he goes, you have to keep him here. He has to do this because it's TV and all the all these yeah, words. It has to be done. It has to be done. Yeah. I go, great. <laughs> so he comes back. I wait for him to cool down a little bit. And then I said to him, I go, I said, you know what? Uh, no, first of all, I totally agree with you on that one cut. I said, that... <clears throat> I said, I'm not throwing the director under the bus. I said, but that was something that he asked for. Because in my cut, it was a full close-up. It wasn't the wider cut shot. And I said, second of all, I really need you to help me here because we have all, this, all these lines that we have to do for television. And, <clears throat> and we could do it real quickly and you'll be out of here you know, within less than an hour. He looked at me, okay gets into the room, he does all his lines, and then we had a hilarious time doing the TV version of oh, son of a bitch, motherfucker, and all that stuff. Yeah. And so we just made up stuff, right? And he'd make up stuff and we'd all laugh, and I said, hey, I don't care, it's TV, right? You, we did it. And so, and, and he left happy. You know, we had a good time. <clears throat> then after he left, Post-production supervisor said to me, how did you do that? I go, do what? He goes, get him to stay. I said, well, I had to wait till he calmed down. I wasn't going to go in and ask him while he was on the phone, phone screaming at his agent, you know, and how pissed off he was, right? And so, you know, that's sort of feeling things out and knowing kind of where people are at, you know, before you venture, and then sometimes it just isn't worth it. Sometimes you go, hey, I tried. The guy <laughs> wouldn't do it. <laughs> you know, and that's happened that's to That's important though, to be able to read those situations in this business. I mean, that's what really can get you to the next level. Yeah, I mean, I really believe that. I mean, I know editors who, who are, are really good at their craft, but their social skills are, you know, they're in a dark room all, all day long, you know? they don't. They don't relate well, um, and so I, I try to hear everybody's you know side of the story. And when I'm mixing, I include my whole team. I include the mixer, the music supervisor, the music editor, my sound effects um, uh, supervisor, my sound designer, usually the same person, and I ask for their opinions because it's important. I said at the end of the day. The buck stops with me. If it sounds like shit, then you can blame me, okay? You guys suggested it, I said no. And so <clears throat> that's how I worked when I was doing all those Tyler Perry movies, is that he wasn't there. And so that's how- He's I, based out of Atlanta. He was right? based out of yeah. Atlanta. And we edited here in LA. Uh, so it was a perfect, it was a perfect relationship. So you just sort of email him cuts yes. along the way? or yeah. Well, he, he, well, we didn't even email him that we would, um, well, we'd send him the DVD 
but really highly lots of security stuff. And then a lot of times he wouldn't even want that. He'd like come out uh, for my cut and then he'd give me notes and then I'd make, you know, get, take the notes. Then he'd fly off and then maybe come back one more time um, to look at the, the cut. And then there was one time he said, well, how long is the movie? I go, 108 minutes. He goes, okay, get it down to 100. I go, really? He goes, yeah, get down to eight. Get eight minutes out of here. I go, okay. And so I would take out the stuff that I didn't like, right? Because there, there were, you know, tiny stuff that would bother me, but he would look at the whole picture. And, um, and it's very interesting because, you know, in the, the movie Minority Report, how that visual effect of them, you know, moving screens around in, in thin air. Yeah. Well, that's how his brain works. Because I would run the movie at real time, and he would say, okay, uh, take this line and put it over here. And then this line, I want you to put it back there. And then, you know, this scene, I want you to move it over here. And, I mean, it was like a jigsaw puddle, puzzle. But it was all in his head. And the other interesting thing, too, is that he didn't, when it came to the Medea character, he was always more generous um, giving the spotlight to the other actors because he knew how Medea could, I mean... Could really steal a scene. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so he, he was okay with, with, with not having a lot of, you know, Medea in there if it wasn't about Medea. It was like in Meet the Browns. There was a whole other scene where Medea gets lost because Joe had been smoking a joint and he was driving and they went to Florida instead of to Atlanta. So um, we took that section out. So it was more streamlined and the movie was more about Angela Bassett and Rick Fox. So, um, and, and I know that what, what we had in well, certainly I know that my relationship with him and the pro and our process, so unique. It was just so unique and um, it'll never happen again. Yeah. Over, what was it, six or seven movies? Maybe more. Fourteen. Fourteen. In seven wow. years. Yeah. We were doing two at a time. That's incredible. Editing two simultaneously. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And the fact, you know, he trusted you and you guys had that close relationship he could be in Atlanta you could be here in Los Angeles and it could it could work well and also you know I realized um, he had plays he, he was taking plays on the road oh yeah he had that touring company right he had a touring company yeah. plus then he was writing a TV show and all that but it was true is that if if we didn't have that kind of relationship then he wouldn't be able to do what he's what he did then now He's got it more uh, confined because he has all his TV shows that he's shooting in his studio that he directs and he writes. Mm -hmm. And so he's able to go downstairs, uh, you know, into the dungeon, it's the dungeon, uh, <laughs> to see the cuts before he starts his day. And those editors start their day at six in the morning, you know, and it's all union show and they're off by three. So um, he hires at least 350 union workers, wow. the IA. I mean, it's, it's massive.
Yeah, he yeah. has an empire. I mean, it's incredible yes. what he's uh, what he's built up there. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to go back to the player just uh -huh. because it's interesting uh, in terms of Robert oh. Altman's career as well because I think that was sort of a comeback movie for him. He had yes, made it a was. lot of movies in the eighties, right? Secret Honor and uh, a lot of television movies, but this was like his big, big comeback, like maybe his biggest film since Nashville. Yeah. Um, so how did it come about that you were working with him again on that? Well, um, that was after, uh, that was from the scene um, at the museum, because Scotty called me and said, oh, they, he shot this museum thing, and he doesn't know how to put it together. So there was another editor on that show, and she was cutting the main uh, you know, he, she was cutting the beginning of the movie, and then I worked on, uh, about a month on that one scene. And so, then I took the movie from, from that point to the end of the movie. So, you know, in the middle, w w the, we met. Yeah. And so that's how I, I started editing. And the interesting thing is that, you know, it was a, a, um, a bittersweet um, experience and, and, and ending. So it, it was a great opportunity, but at the end, he wouldn't give me an upfront credit because I asked him for it. I said, you know, I worked on it. I thought I was going to just be here for like six weeks. I've been here for three and a half months. I said, I cut half of this movie and I'd yeah. like to see if I, you'd give me an upfront credit. Because he'd done it with the other guys. He'd done it with his other editors. Uh, and so I thought, well, if he did it with those guys, and you know, he knows me, then he would g give it to me. Yeah. Well, that was really naive of me because, hey, it's a man's world. So he said, well, no, I can't do that. I can't do that because it'll take away from the other editors' um, work. And I go, okay. And that really hurt me. I mean, it hurt me emotionally and it hurt my career because even in looking for an agent... How it, are you credited, you know, at the end of the day? How did the credit come by? Um, it, was at the, it was at the back end of the movie. Uh, so, so at the very, very end with the scrolling credits? Yes, that it was, was one of the first credited. edits. I mean, one of the first credits after the, the, the DGA. Okay. No, it was after the DGA. Oh, after the DGA. Then I put, got mine right there. So it wasn't even, I mean, it was like the third or fourth card. So I kind of made sure that that's where it was. Um, and that's the difference in getting nominated for an Academy Award. Because she went on to get nominated for an Academy Award, and my work wasn't recognized because my credit was at the back end. Wow, such a bizarre rule. Very bizarre. Yes. Was there any way to fight it at the time? or No. No, because he'd all, you know, it's interesting because somebody said to me when, when um, the player got nominated for best editing, a friend of mine called up and goes, you got to get your name up there. You got to fight. You got to do this, this. I go, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I said, it's done. I yeah. said, because one day I'm going to need Bob. I'm going to need him. Okay. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, it's already done. It's a bridge under the water. I don't care anymore, you know? And so um, um, I had a real, I was out of work for a whole year. And um, um, I finally got an agent, but all the agents that I would call up would ask me, so what part of it did you cut? You know, I want to be a smart ass. I could have said, hey, I, the good parts, 
you know, <laughs> what other parts? <laughs> and I said, um, well, I cut the second half. You know, the swimming pool where Richard Grant and Dean Stock, um, Stockwell was pitching the story to uh, Tim Robbins. That was a scene that I cut. Yeah. And I thought that got, you know, the biggest laughs. But that didn't matter at the end of the day. And so um, I finally got a job on a, a movie and it was it paid below that was it paid like what you would get for, as an apprentice but I didn't care because it's it would say that I would get an upfront credit all the stuff that I wanted and I didn't get on the player so as things worked out um, I you know cut the movie and um, the producers came in and looked at my cut and and I got this really bad feeling right and I said to my assistant I says you know I have this really bad feeling I'm gonna get fired he goes oh no you're just nervous because it's the first time you've shown him I go no I said I'm telling you I'm getting it right here in my heart that I'm getting fired so um, January 4th comes along and we go back to work and I'm working away production manager comes in he's got this look on his face he goes we're letting you go I go I said well I kind of knew that he goes well how do you how did you know I go I just had a feeling I said and you're hiring the trailer editor as the editor well how did you know that I go because he probably recut the whole show didn't he and he goes yeah as a matter of fact he did I go I'm out of here so I go home and the directors were pretending like, oh, I didn't know what happened. Bullshit. So I go home, and my husband is watching, I think it was football at that time. And I, I go home, and I go, you know what? I haven't worked in a whole year. Where the hell am I going to get another job? And he was a gaffer. So he, he's, he's in the business, right? Yeah. And so he said, you know, all this means is something bigger and better is going to come your way. And just like in the movie, the telephone overlapped. It was the Joy Luck Club. <laughs> I swear I'm not making this stuff up. And so Patrick Markey, the producer, calls me. And he goes, hi, um, this is so-and-so and so-and-so. Um, um, we need an editor for this movie. And he goes, are you available? And I go, Yes, I start laughing. He goes, well, what's so funny? I said, well, I just got fired about an hour ago. <laughs> and there's this pause. He goes, what happened? He goes, well, I showed them my cut, and they didn't like it, so they fired me. And so he goes, well, that's editing 101. Everybody knows that the editor's cut is always long. He goes, well, then are you available to fly up here to meet Wayne? Wayne Wang. And so I flew up to meet Wayne, and the rest is... Yeah. I mean, that was one of the biggest, biggest selling books, and it became yes. a huge hit, that movie. And then the people at Disney call, called Altman. And I called um, Altman's office. I go, Jim, I said, the people at Disney are calling Bob about this movie that I'm up for. Oh, as a reference. Yes, as a reference. Yeah. Wow. And so I said... Can you let him know? And he goes, oh, no, he's already on the phone talking to them. I go, what, what's he saying? He goes, oh, he's singing your praises. I go, perfect. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That 
I knew that I would need his recommendation one day. I didn't know when, and I didn't know. I mean, I didn't so know when. So you knew that wasn't the fight worth fighting no. for on the player. That no, it was it better wasn't. to step back there. Yeah, and so and it worked out. It worked out yeah. because had I fought it, all he had to say was, "No, she's a troublemaker. No, you know she she's too demanding and blah 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 blah." It could have gone anyway, but. Because he gave me a great recommendation, off I went. You know, another life, you know, altering moment. Um, so, you know, that then led to, you know, other, other projects. But the player, for a lot of people, you know, when they see the player, that's one of their favorite pictures, and definitely the Joy Luck Club is a favorite picture. Um, yeah. I got to interview uh, Ron Bass a while back. Oh, uh -huh. Worked on the screenplay. Yeah, I worked with Ron. Yeah, he worked with Amy on it. Yeah, they collaborated on the uh, on the script there. Right, right. I was curious, um, you know, looking looking at your career and you know looking at how you work. You know, has your process changed to now? Do you feel like you work differently now as opposed to when you first started? No, I think this the process is still the same. I um, I could work, you know, out of, well, they shoot out of sequential order, but my process is still the same. I have to find the beginning of the scene before I go and fit uh, and, and get dive into it. Though sometimes, if I'm really stuck on a scene, I, I think about you know what my friend Danny said told me. Um, I said, what happens when you get stuck and you don't know what to do? And he goes, you do the dummy cut. I go, what's that? He goes, you just fuck around until you f find something. Until, <laughs> until it, you know, until it happens. And sometimes, you know, I do that. But, but the process is the same. I watch the dailies and I'm looking for specific things. And, and oh, and you were asking about how difficult it was to work with Bob with all the you know, improvising. Yeah. There's so many different ways you could put it. Right. Together. So many different options. But you know, the, it, once again, I, I went back to my, my improv background, is that I just kind of know intuitively what I think is funny. Hopefully everybody else would think it's funny. Um, and so um, that's how I work. And also working with Tyler, because a lot... He'll do one take, two takes with the, the real dialogue. And then, this is, where, like, this is where the genius happens too, is that he'll sit back and then he'll pick up on something that's really funny that's happening. And then the second time, he'll start throwing lines out. And they get funnier and funnier and funnier. And especially people like the, the Manns, David Mann, who plays Mr. Brown, that's worked with him for 17 years. They've been on tour forever, yeah. right? He, they, he picks it up. He hears what he's saying. Then he embellishes it, okay? And then as he's embellishing it, then Tyler's thinking up another funny line and just constantly throwing this back and forth. So there is like another movie in all those scenes that could go anyway. Right, yeah. but I think that I realize that once he's got it, then he stops. So usually, I don't know. I just pick the stuff that I think is the funniest, and I sat next to him on a show, a single 
the, the Single Moms Club, where Wendy McCullough is describing um, um, this, this woman that she's like this wall. So she's going on about the wall, and everybody's like, okay, we're, everybody's just sort of like, okay, where's she, what is she doing? And then the more she talks, the deeper she's like putting herself in the hole, you know, like a big black, black wall. And, there, and so Tyler listens, like sees what, what she's doing, then he throws stuff. So it's like a wall with graffiti on it. And so I'm sitting next to him, and then once he's done, like he'll look at me and he goes, that's pretty funny, right? Like a whisper, because that's funny. And I'll, that's really great. And I says, I, I know, yeah, I could use that. You know, that's really funny. And so, so the, uh, that's the barometer as well when I'm on set with him. I mean, when I was working with him, I'd go there for the first week and sit next to him and kind of watch and and kind of, you know, if he needs advice as to what to do or um, more than anything, I was sort of like the go-to person because a lot of times people were afraid to bother him on the set and I told him that, you know, especially when it came to stuff that's out of focus. I yeah. said, you know, people are, are, are afraid of you. He goes, well, why? I go, well, because they don't want to bother you. And he goes, well, you know, it's because I have so many things on my mind, I can't have people interrupting me. And so I said, okay, fine. And then people would come to me and ask me stuff. And then I would be like the go-between. And, and I'd say to him, I go, okay, so, um, so-and-so wants to know if it's okay to do so-and-so and he goes yeah and then you look at me like why are you even asking me that question <laughs> hey you're the boss yeah. okay well, that's I mean, you achieve that type of success too I mean people just become fearful of you you know they don't want to say anything you know right someone in Tyler Perry's position right you know, they look at him as this intimidating figure well exactly and and so I think that um, you know, when when I was working with him, I realized that that we stick as close to the script as possible. But if some if somebody improvises a line that has the same intent, but it's funny, of course I'm going to use that funny line. Yeah. Uh, well, I just thought to wrap everything mm -hmm. up and to sort of uh, encapsulate, you know, what your career has been. You know what sticks in your mind as you know one of the the happiest moments where maybe you've been in front of a scene or watched a movie and you've said wow this this really works this has really come together I think the joy luck club you know because I I never allowed myself to get emotional over it because I mean maybe in the quiet you know but when I'm by myself if I'm watching a scene and I'm tearing up and crying, then I know that it's working. I mean, even like working with Dolly Parton, you know, I'll sit there and I'll watch it, and if it's tearing me up, then I know it's working. But I don't show that in front of other people in an audience because I think to myself, it goes, wow, that's egotistical. She's crying <laughs> over her own work, you know? So um, I think that was, you know, one of the happiest times um, and definitely um, working with Dolly Parton one of the the best times not 
not to downplay working with Bob, that was a whole other happiness animal house time, but working with Dolly, she's such um, an iconic figure and just a kind person and, and very considerate. And her whole team, Sam Heskell and uh, Hudson Hickman and uh, Stephen Herrick, the director, who's like an amazing you know, director, and I interviewed that job over the phone and he hired me over the phone just talking because we had a rapport going. But I think meeting Dolly and having her say that she liked what I was doing um, because it was, you know, we were putting her life story out there. Yeah. And if it wasn't emotional, then we didn't do our job. Yeah, people have to be able to connect with it. Yes, yeah. Well, well so. thank you so much for oh, taking the time to talk today. I really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. You can subscribe to the Road to Cinema podcast on iTunes for a new episode downloaded every week. We'll see you next time.